I like how we've developed a little rhythm there. Yeah, I like this. Yeah. We, uh, this is a great conversation. Killian Kieran, the CEO of Ethica, which is privacy tech. Uh, one of the smartest people I've met. Um, met him through Tremendous a business person. A friend of mine and uh, just, I mean, super cool thinker. Yeah, no. And like this is he's on his second business, no? Two or three, you know. Two or three? Yeah. I love guys who drop out of college and just do cool shit. Like it, it, they have a courage I don't. I, I don't have. Like just like guys and gals, which is like they're like, you know what? I'm not gonna go down this road that all of the rest of you guys are traveling. I'm gonna find my own trail and, and build it. I love that. It's amazing. Uh, amazing that he did that. Amazing that he transitioned from being a developer to a founder CEO. You know that, mm-hmm. that journey in itself too, um, and to take on privacy. He he like likes to like downgrade his privacy knowledge but it's just as good as anybody we talk on this show he's he's as deep as anybody on that stuff and uh and he's building great tech for developers uh, privacy engineers in particular but um i think they're solving a lot of really complex problems and um i think you're hitting it on the head which is like i know privacy is in vogue and everybody's trying to figure out how to make money but like the problems are not easy it's not like, you know, it's not like you can build a little widget that does flips and now you've made, you've got a billion dollar business. Like this is hard. You got to get it right. There's a lot of risk and there's a lot of selling that is involved. Like show, you know, it's hard to demonstrate value in this space, not in the sense of that people aren't worried about privacy, but that in the sense that whatever you're selling actually drives a privacy goal of some kind. Right. Um, which, which helps enable the business. Yeah. That's exactly right. And you, you alluded to our, in our discussion with him that, uh, that like the the legacy systems that they're designing privacy tech to help, like it's going to be difficult because they were designed with different parameters. And now he's so it's it's so not a simple problem. It's it and, and you have to balance like that company thinks they built their system just fine. And they that's did. right. And they, they did. did. They did. And it's, it's just not fine today. And like that's yeah exactly. Well, here it is. This is a great conversation. Let's do it. Here we are. We're here. Breakfast Club, Killian Kieran, who's the CEO of Ethica. He's got a sick background behind him. I can't wait to talk about it's about Back to the Future and uh, and data privacy. Easily the nicest background I've seen this whole <laughs> series. So very nicely done. You know, your name uh, makes me think of like high school rivalries because uh, the rival high school of my high school was named Killian. And... Uh, God, I hated Gilly. Oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Was it was it Killian with a C or Killian with, with a K? K with a K. So like that's let's fine. Just that's fine. Killian with a K. No shout out to Killian High School. They're trash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if it was Killian with a C, you'd give it a shout out. You would do that's that. That's right. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Here's what it makes me think of. It makes me think of um, the movie The Running Man. Which is a oh, great, yeah, great '80s movie, and Killian is the bad, the bad guy who's the host of the show. Right, right. Oh, I'll take any of those references. They all. <laughs> it was one of the first uh, Arnold moves where he turns to the camera and says, "Killian, I'll be back." It was uh, one of the classics for sure. Well, hey man, great, great to have you on here. Thanks for being with us. 
let, let's first, I really want to first go into how much you like Back to the Future because I've, I've, I've met you two or three years ago and I did not know this until today. So tell me about it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, look, you said 80s themed uh, and I know the show. So I'm like, what would I pick? And of course, it dawned on me immediately Back to the Future. And it's not a passy interest. It's quite obsessive for those that know me personally are aware of that. So, um, I, you know, I remember watching the movie as a kid, quite literally in the 80s and just... It's sort of crystallizing, like I'm from Ireland, it crystallized sort of Americana culture at its best to me as like a naive Irishman, first of all, right? It looked visually beautiful. And like my passion has always been science, right? Like that's what I studied, that's what I care for. And so it was just crazy scientists, time machine, and my family is obsessed with cars and motorcycles. So it, it just had everything that I would aspire to in life, basically. Yeah. I, I, it's one of my favorite movies. As a kid, for sure, I was obsessed with it. Now as an adult, I'm like, I feel like Marty McFly has a really strange relationship as a high school student with like an old creepo, but yeah. Like, literally, I, when you get into the plot, like it's weird. It's like, kind of like a this, creepy, like- There's plot. real tension tension between him and his high school mother, which is like also- yeah, There's so really intense mom issues in the movie, but it is like, when you're a kid, you're not receiving it that way, right? And like, I totally. just, I was fucking digging the movie, man. Remember his like pickup truck? It's like amazing, oh, yeah. like, oh, Toyota, Toyota Hilux. The Toyota, yes, exactly. Well, it was lifted, it was so nice. I love that movie, man. And I love cars and motorcycles too, so we're on the same page. Well, uh, like what, what stands out about that movie to me, in addition to all the things you just mentioned, is the unfair shot at the Libyans that that movie took off. <laughs> like under, underappreciated how unfair that was. Right, and, and it's such a, like, it is such a, both sensitive plot-wise and time-specific, right? It's shot in the 90s, it would have been some other part of the Middle East. Shot in the 2000s, again, it would have been different, but it was the Libyans back then. It was the Libyans, right? Highly specific small country to really focus on. It felt really unfair, <laughs> really unfair to them. But uh, I think it's a cool, it's a cool topic for us to talk about because, um, and I want to, like, I want to get into it with you about this, like, Clearly, the times we've interacted, the times we've talked, you mentioned science, but I would say, like, if someone were asking me about what I know of you, it would be like, yeah, he's really forward thinking. So, like, how did that, and that's back to the future to me. That's like a lot. If you look at the whole franchise of all the movies, like the second one, they got really into the future. And so that was really cool to see. Like, were you, did any of those things, like, sort of drive you to kind of want to be a creator? that type of thing God, it's such an interesting question Andy when you perform it like that I, I think it would be very sort of hubristic of me to say back then when I watched in the 80s it drove me to be a creator I, I think the bit that I probably left out which is a minor side but sort of geeky thing so I started coding very very young my mother exposed us to computers very very early on and, and so we learned to code as kids but I, I got sort of quite seriously into it at about 12 or 13 years old and I would stay awake all night long coding. First language of choice was C++. And, um, and I, it was obsessive for me. And, I, and my routine, this is gonna sound like somewhere between a child and, and a complete weirdo would be to get like a, a pint of milk and a pack of cookies at, at like midnight and then sit and code with a screen on playing Back to the Future and repeat. And it, so I just, I literally listened to it like a soundtrack while I would, code so it just exists for me lit quite literally as a soundtrack to everything I built and so when you talk about creativity I think the aspect of that that matters to me is now maybe an entrepreneur or a product thinker if you will came later like in my teens I spent a huge amount of time building things and making things 
and and that movie is just like a sort of soundtrack to those moments for me if that makes sense when did you when did you get to the moment when you went from building a thing or building a, a software thing to thinking to yourself well i gotta build the whole company now or i have to like do more than just kind of like because obviously you, as a technical founder you have a lot to do with the product itself and that that's that's your bent you know in, in doing that kind of thing but like how did you go from that to that I mean, it, again, uh, I would love there to be like better founder mythology because I know everyone's got these amazing backstories, but I think they fill in the blanks after the fact. Um, I think if I was being entirely honest, um, I, I'm not going to say I fell into it. I, like I, so I dropped out of my last, I, I dropped out of my college degree, physics and computer science. And um, my mother's still sad about that for what it's worth. Like, you know, 20 years later, that's still the thing she's most upset about. Um, and I worked as a software engineer, contract software engineer for a very short period and met a, a gentleman who would become my co-founder in my first business. And it, it wasn't that we sat down and said, we're going to build a company. He was an excellent, uh, what you would now think of him against 18, 19 years ago. He was an excellent UI and interaction designer, uh, sort of brilliant product thinker on the, on the front end experience. And I was a pretty good software engineer who had, I think, a good product view of sort of end user empathy and end user use of a product. And we started making things. We basically said, well, you know, the contract, the freelance customers we work with don't pay us enough. Let's start building things under an, a name. And we ran that business pretty successfully for about 13 years. It, it turned into one of the biggest sort of digital consulting shops in Ireland. Um, ultimately, we opened five offices across Europe and the US. Um, and so there wasn't a moment where I sat down and said, I'm going to own a company. It was more, I will build products that solve problems. And that uh proliferated into a business i think in the, in the first instance awesome I, I think there's it doesn't have to be mythological you know it just is what it is for for anybody I mean, for, sure. for sure so how did how did uh other than your brother being a privacy lawyer which is probably not the way this happened but like how does this how did <laughs> privacy become the tech that you were gonna be focused on and and you were going to think about and build. He made the dumber choice, by the way, uh, sure. to go to law school. I mean, well, I mean, I definitely, when I look at the hours that you folks put in both at school and then in the first few years, uh, like in um, in firms, I, I don't know how you do it. I, that's besides the point. I have huge admiration for your tenacity. Um, destroy components of our souls. I, I, I believe that. I believe that. I'll never forget the first time he and a group of associates at the firm you were at were telling me with pride how many magic roundabouts they'd done in a row. I didn't even know what the expression meant. And I was told that it was where you go home, have a shower, get changed and go back to the office without stopping. I, that just blew my mind, but that was a point of pride. Anyway, um, so the, the genesis for what became Ethica is actually from my earlier business. So, you know, that, that business was working with large enterprise customers. Like, so, you know, so, legacy and large household brands, consumer packaged goods businesses like Heineken and Pepsi and Unilever, et cetera. And our, our, as a sort of vendor to those businesses, our first exposure to the GDPR at the time was sort of seven, eight years ago. And it was fascinating. It was the, I, I won't name the company, but it's the chief legal officer of one of those very large brands. So sort of came into a room with a bunch of vendors, technology vendors in the room to that business and basically said, hey, the GDPR is coming, the GDPR is coming, sort of like their head on fire. I had no context for what the GDPR was at the time. We weren't asked to solve it for that company. We were asked to ensure that our business would be ready for this future state of compliance, right? That was how it was framed to us, along with a bunch of other vendors. And of course, you know, all engineers and data folks thinking about the problem, you go away and look at the 
the regulatory requirements this is again four and a half five years before the gdpr comes into effect and you find that the solution essentially is to hire management consultants at the time right it's like you hire management consultants they'll interview engineers they'll analyze schema they'll effectively evaluate the risk of things in the business and potentially provide you sort of remediative actions what I and the team I was working with couldn't wrap our head around was the regulations to us, very naively as non-lawyers and thinking from a product and engineering perspective, the regulations seem to be intended very well to uh, essentially define uh, to a certain degree what I didn't know at the time was you know, the principles of privacy by design. Like how do you enforce those in a system? So not just how do you add people to a process, but how do you make technology behave better with the data it collects? and how it uses that information. So I found it curious that what we were doing was throwing a lot of human capital at the problem, like you know, more and more human beings evaluating the risk of systems. This seemed like an engineering problem uh, that needed to be managed by lawyers. Um, and that was strange to me. And so the, the sort of thesis for Ethica was formed from there. Um, and I think what I was more surprised by was that the tech world was late to this problem because I think, as you'll all recognize, like the venture-backed tech community has a different attitude to compliance or regulation. Like you traditionally take the Uber model, like you bend it to your will, right? Like you, you can bend compliance until it sort of fits the operating model of the business. And the sort of view that I would take, of course, and uh, is that, you know, and obviously businesses like that have, have been very successful. The view we would take is actually business needs to think long and hard about risk in the products they create. But the problem for engineers is the tools don't exist to do that. So Ethica ultimately established itself to provide tools to engineers to make better products, right? Safer, more respectful products. We, we went through this a lot, like when the GDPR, like maybe the year before when we were kind of starting to think it through and like from an ad tech perspective, think through like what's going to happen to cookies and consent and things like that. And, and, the feedback we got when we had discussions internally or back channel got like regulator feedback was like the tech community is going to have to figure this out. They're going to have to evolve and figure this out. And I find it interesting that you, you kind of saw it that way right away. Like the, the tech is going to have to jump in here. And all these, and this is like where your experience with all these brands over 13 years makes sense to me. Like you had a exposure to all the ways in which, you know, enterprises have fucked up systems in, in the sense that they've just like built 50 systems plugged plug together in a way that, um, you know, for a large enterprise, only they can sort of diagnose and figure out. And then the challenge you sort of decided to take on was let's give developers tools to like help them figure that out. Right, exactly. Like, and you guys know this better than anybody because you sit in that function in those organizations. Uh, you know, the larger a business become, it's not, first of all, we all know that privacy isn't just beholden to large businesses. This is the responsibility of every business that wants to behave ethically, right? And it becomes to a certain degree table stakes for like brand and trust. But then, you know, a business that starts small, like let's assume this sort of trope of like two engineers in a room come up with an idea and they build a thing quickly. The issue is that idea of agility, that like move fast and break things message that sounds great becomes the sword you fall on in the future, right? Because you are moving so quickly, you're not necessarily putting in the sort of consideration to how that product will behave at scale with a lot of data or a lot of other users or engineers on the business side. And then it becomes very hard to fix that, right? So then you've already, like the horse is bolted, right? The product's in, in production, it's in the real world, it's accumulating user data, you're growing successfully, all of that's awesome. You're, you're bolting on additional distributed systems and vendors to accumulate and manage that data and, and sort of leverage it in a, in a positive sense. But now you can't put that back in the box. And so now you end up with the sort of outcome of using products like the ones we see in the sort of 
current privacy GRC space, which are effectively tools intended to sort of stem risk after it's already occurred, right? Like the products in production, we now have a problem, tell us where our data is. And that's where you get into data discovery and data mapping, right? You could argue that problem shouldn't exist if the design of systems beforehand is better, right? Well, is it about better design or is it about the slow trail of regulation? Right? Because like, I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's to me is the biggest, no question of, about, you know, like the lack of, let me say it a different way. GDPR didn't exist when a lot of these companies built themselves. Totally, right? totally. And so like, totally right? So like, I think sometimes, and I'm not, I'm literally not speaking as a Facebooker, but just in general, like, I think it's difficult to say to like the top five or six or the top 100 tech companies, well, you got it all wrong. Well, I don't know. About oh, that, right? I, I'd agree. A hundred percent agree with you, Pedro. They didn't because they built around the constraints they knew existed, right? Then we're there, yeah. Totally. It, the example we used to rationalize our business two and a half years ago when we started, when we were talking to investors about the sea change we saw coming, the way we framed it was, PCI compliance, PCI DSS compliance as it related to payment processing. In the early 2000s, right, you could do anything with a credit card. I don't mean intentionally, I just mean there were no regulations. I'm oversimplifying, but you could process a credit card without encrypted uh, transactions, right? There was no mandatory requirements for TLS. And it doesn't mean engineers intentionally did that out of uh, like a lack of care. It just wasn't a requirement. Those business requirements didn't exist. So they did it the right, the best they could. Then you have an inflection point at which fraud rises so much you get PCI DSS mandated in the industry, at which point every business has to go back and reconsider how it builds payment processing gateways. And any small company that wants to process a payment has loads of friction to overcome to build a payment gateway. What Stripe does so elegantly at that point, and I think it's like it's important to not negate this, it's not just they were a payment company. What they built was a very elegant compliant system, so you didn't have to worry about that as an end business, you could effectively borrow the knowledge that they had already accumulated to make you compliant with that. And I think what we see in our view of privacy or maybe critical data management for trust is that that's, we've, we've had the same issue occur now. The regulations now exist and are expanding and proliferating. The tools aren't there to prevent businesses from making those mistakes, you could say. And that's what's missing is that layer of uh, trust systems that ensures a business can continue to move really quickly and in an agile fashion without incurring that sort of uh, sort of late stage debt in the five or 10 years time. Was the pitch like, we want to be the stripe of, you know? <laughs> it's an, it's a name a bunch of our investors have used. We don't, I know I'm not like, I, I try to avoid the like stripe of data privacy, but it is, yeah. yeah. I know, but it's yeah. kind of good. <laughs> it's, kind, it's kind of a good fit, right? Because I think you see a lot of people use stripe that way and, yeah. and feel, and feel backstopped by that. For sure. And, and it's worth considering that product roadmap, right? It started as a basic credit card processing. I'm being harsh, but you know, the early product, a decade on, it processes 20% of the world's credit card transactions. And it has a sort of ecosystem of products that support safe economic transactions. Privacy is the same, right? Like the, and not it's credit card processing, but you know, it's a critical business asset for every organization that's data-driven and you need to adequately protect it and also provide trust to the end user. But those tools are only starting to emerge because privacy in the engineered sense is a very nascent thought really, right? Yeah, and I think Killian's like job, like the company's mission is bigger because like credit card transactions are transactional in nature, right? Like they and they just sure. repeat themselves. Like privacy compliance is definitely not linear that way right like it's this Absolutely. like much more asymmetric problem inside a company touches different parts of the business 
um, and therefore a harder problem to solve, in my opinion. So oh, yeah. totally, and and that's why we like candidly we take a very long view, like a decade long view on the way we see this. So we we state our vision as a business to be trust infrastructure. That sounds like a tacky cliche, but if you bear with me, the thinking is, if you really want to solve this, just the way you described, Pedro, it's a sort of endemic issue of data flowing around an organization over time. It accumulates systems, maybe it acquires businesses. You can only solve that when you achieve a sort of critical mass of infrastructure. So every business is built on some of the same tools. So there's interoperability between data sets. You can understand what information the system has. And that sort of exists as an agreed standard. Uh, until you get there, we will continuously be essentially like sort of unpacking balls of wool to try and find where data is. That never goes away. So, yeah. so it has to become a sort of infrastructure solution. When we did, when we had a conversation with our friend Vivek, who runs privacy at Shopify, he, we talked, we did the movie The Three Amigos, and we talked about the bad guy was El Guapo. And I think, <laughs> I think that we, that we were talking about what are the big privacy El Guapos? And we had a great conversation about like, you know, what that, what that means for us as lawyers. And I'm curious from you as a founder CEO, what do you see as the biffs, you know, the, the big biff, uh, bad things or, or not bad, like, you know, kind of the challenges that you're going to see. Headwinds, over headwinds. Over yeah, headwinds. Headwinds, yeah. Um, I think, you know, the, the obvious one, which you guys have both experienced, and I say this as the software engineer, is a, a sort of cultural dissonance between the legal GRC and the engineering function of the organization, right? So you both want the same thing, right? Like in a different way in that, you know, the legal entity or the privacy council function wants to mitigate risk for the organization, do the right thing from a sort of cultural and trust perspective for its users, that respect and ethics. Engineers, I believe, are intrinsically ethical, but everything that's being provided to them today in terms of process feels like friction. Like it, it's, uh, hey, fill in these forms. Hey, let's go through an, a PIA process. Let's make that part of the SDLC. Let's evaluate risk, uh, speak to these auditors, et cetera. And, and so the dissonance right now is that they are, their objectives are set against sort of agility, continuous integration, continuous delivery. And that doesn't align with the sort of slow and steady and measured pace. It isn't that they can't. I, like DJ Patil has a lovely expression for this, right? Like a move thoughtfully and um, fix things um, or move purposefully and fix things. It isn't to say that uh, move fast and break things is bad. It's just we need to twist on that because engineers have been trained so much that moving so quickly at the cost of everything else is fine and we need better tools for them. So for me, the biggest concern is ensuring that engineers learn that this is part of their role and something they should be proud to do well. Like building respectful technology is something we should all feel pretty good about. Like, I don't think that's a bad thing, but the tools don't exist. So until they do, it's hard to blame engineers for that. That's my good one. That's, a, that's the concern that keeps me awake. You know, there's only a few companies that are providing tools like this and you have some competitors out there. Like, how do you see that landscape? We saw we saw two big, big competitors of yours raise really large rounds. And sure. And that is, you know, both a both a benefit and a nail in their in a, in a and sort of like a, a can be viewed as a strike against them in some ways. And so sure. how do you think about that? You don't have to go into too much of your your, your yeah. strategy or whatever, but just how do you look at that? I mean, I know, I know uh, you'll have a you'll have thoughts on it. Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to answer. I you know. Uh, but we, the companies you're referring to, happy to talk by name, right? One Trust, One Trust, and Big ID. They've got slightly different theses themselves as businesses against each other and with us, right? Um, I think One Trust is born out of the slightly more traditional sort of GRC tool set and work, workflow and document management process that we're all like that the legal functions familiar with. It was first to market, very good execution in terms of getting to market and getting to customers. 
I, I think where we'd all acknowledge without criticizing what the cracks show there is that it's an awesome workflow management and document management tool for the governance risk compliance side of the house. It doesn't actually mitigate risk in the delivery of a product. So it's great if you're trying to evaluate risk post hoc, like a product's already in the world. I wanna have everybody fill in forms and evaluate sort of workflows. Big ID comes out the other way, which is, hey, you don't know where your data is. We'll tell you where it is and then you can start to manage the risk around it. Our thesis is slightly different, right? It's sort of as I alluded to is, those are problems that exist because the product is in market, sort of as Petra said, it's anachronistic, right? Like it's a, effectively, you didn't know the requirements existed. You put a product in the world and then you've got to go back and tweak it and add sort of privacy preserving behaviors and characteristics to it. That should be solved earlier in the delivery cycle so that it doesn't get to that point. You shouldn't need a big ID if your engineers have got the tools they need to generate data annotations or data maps, right? That, that's a problem that shouldn't exist. That should be easier to do. To get back to the point though, therefore, when I say, I would say on the valuations, like kudos to them for raising, right? Like it's a frothy market. The secular trends are really compelling. Privacy is growing really quickly. I get it. Do I have a different thesis of how privacy gets solved in the long term and how you build better products, like actually safer products that mean that like legal teams like you guys sleep soundly at night because you're not worried that the product is going to just fall over or let data seep out? Yeah, that's not like data mapping tools don't tell you what's going to go wrong. That's the wrong place to start. Right? You got to go back up upstream. So. You got to do that much earlier to learn from those. Yeah, I think there's space for for an engineering focused privacy compliance tool. I don't think the other two really are that. Uh, they're, they're, yeah. they're good in their own right. Very valuable. Yeah. yeah, like I've used OneTrust tools, but I'm a lawyer sitting on the back end on the compliance side and it makes perfect sense. I document risk, I am, you know, whatever. Totally. But like, that's not the engineer's job. Um, and nor is it productive for engineers to like look at some back end risk analysis. Like it's just, I don't see how sure. that drives, in, you know, product development. I agree. I mean, they play, totally play in the same space, but it's not, it's not the same tool, but by any yep. stretch. And yep. um, it, it's, there's, there's, if one thing's clear, there's plenty of room. <laughs> oh, it's about like, and, and you sort of, you sort of said this yourself a moment ago, Andy, when you said, and Pedro, you did too, and you said it's sort of, a, it's bigger than just data privacy. You know, the view we take is that data privacy is a, is a critical issue in society. So you all know that you're experts in this field far more than I am it's worth calling out that the risk of data management, sort of the category of data that might be a concern for business will vary. So end user or subject information or employee data might matter, matter under some jurisdictions. But when you start to generalize and not to not care about privacy, you start to but it could be related to data, it could be HIPAA, it could be financial records. This is more about better design of effectively data management, data classification, data annotation systems. So that if you as a business, like you and the GRC function might say, well, the concern in our business is medical data. The concern in our business is end user data or employee data or a combination of those. You should be able to manage that appropriately. And so we think of this as a much bigger issue. This is the safety and trust of data-driven systems, like to know that they make the right decisions, that data ends up in the right place and that you federate access to it appropriately. Speaking of safety and trust, I've got to go save the internet here in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Just before we go, I do I do want you to talk about driving fast cars because you have a fast car and a fast like fast car behind you, but like what? Well, is that one travels through time, Andy. I I, I, yeah, that's uniquely fast car. Thank I, you. I wish I owned that. <laughs> but it only goes eighty eight. It only goes eighty eight. <laughs> so, uh, how did your family um, answer this so much? 
Yeah, my, look, I I know we've got to type for time. So the quick version of this is it's like cars and motorcycles have been in my family's blood. So my twin brother and I have been riding bikes since we were kids. My dad rode and raced bikes since he was a kid. In Ireland, there's a huge culture of, when I say street racing, what we call it is road racing. Um, if you look up the Isle of Man TT, you'll see this. I love that it, race. Right, it, it's insane. It's literally uh, guys on race bikes you would see on a track, but on closed roads. It's a legal race. It's very dangerous, uh, but it is legal. It's just a very risky sport. Have you, done the that. Have you done the TT? Have you done it? No, no, I've, I, no, no, no. I've attended and watched. Um, no, no, but but it, it, uh, that type of racing, what we call closed road circuit racing in Ireland, is very common. They'll close yeah, yeah. some country roads and people will race. And so we've always been around bikes. So my brother races bikes. He's a, a racing instructor at the California Superbike School. So when he's not a Twitter, he teaches people to race motorcycles. Um, and I, I build them in my spare time. I build motorcycles, vintage We got to talk motorcycles because I've been riding motorcycles since I was four years old. True story. And there's one right behind that Kudos. wall. Um, there's actually two That's about to be right behind that wall. I love to ride. And I like fast cars too. Huge Formula One guy, indie indie car guy. Oh, Pedro, um, we could so and much. I'm with, so much and fun. I'm obsessed with Group B racing in the '80s. I know Andy has no idea what that is, but I know you do. I'm obsessed yes. with Group B racing and um, uh, you know MotoGP, like Mark Marquez, my brother from the Spanish homeland. So listen, I'm big into it too. I wish so. We so I we have and collect my brother and I old uh, two-stroke MotoGP bikes, real two-stroke <sighs> MotoGP, and we we still ride them in the U.S. Yeah. I'm surprised. I'd be terrified, but like we need to do a whole other episode and just talk cars and bikes. Just saying, cars and bikes. It's a separate topic. Well, what, yeah. One of these days we'll actually have a drink in person. I'm with it. We didn't get to my great question of is Guinness good, but we'll get to we'll get to that another time. <laughs> yes, yes, of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> thanks for hanging out with us man all right thanks a pleasure guys Good to thank see you so much guys a pleasure yep. take care yep. cheers all right you can you hang up and we'll do a little intro we'll do your intro and then you're golden thanks buddy thanks cheers. man take care guys bye, bye. Soon. i love this <laughs>